My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy Mother's Day. Um, so I became a Christian in 1996. And one thing that surprises me over 20 years later is how hard holiness still is. Uh, one would think that after years of, of seeking to obey God and follow him, that that would somehow begin to get easier. And, and of course, it, it does in lots of ways, but I still continue to be surprised, even shocked at how selfish I can be, how uh, arrogant, how self-righteous I can be. I still want things to go my way. Uh, I want to be right, and I want everyone to know that I'm right. Uh, I want to make the rules, but only follow them when it's convenient for me. Uh, in other words, even after years of seeking to follow Christ, there's part of my heart that still wants to be king. I still want to be king. And I think that's true for all of us this side of heaven, that, that there remains within us this subtle yet insidious desire and longing to be king or queen. Well, this morning, the story before us in the book of Judges uh, shows us the logical end of that desire. Left unchecked, what we are capable of in our pursuit of selfish ambition. Uh, last week, we looked at the story of Gideon's downfall, how he let his success go to his head. Well, if, if Gideon's story showed us the tragedy of selfish ambition, the story of Abimelech, his son, shows us the treason of selfish ambition, how making yourself king destroys lives and leads to judgment, whereas uh, surrendering to Christ, our king, our rightful king, actually is the point of life and frees us to love and to follow him. And so chapter 9 in Judges is actually the conclusion of the whole Gideon cycle, the Gideon narrative in this story. And the events that we uh, just read about, which was only a portion of the chapter, I encourage you to read the whole thing on your own. Uh, but the events that we just read about are anchored in the end of chapter 8, um, which already introduced to us the main problem uh, and the main character. The main character being Abimelech, the son of Gideon through his concubine in Shechem, and the main problem being the failure of Israel to remember the Lord's salvation by the hand of Gideon. Uh, the, the chapter concludes, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. And so what happens when our desire to be king is pursued with an unholy abandon. Well, verses 1 through 6 show us the idolatry of wanting to be king, the idolatry of wanting to be king. The beginning of chapter 9, Abimelech, so Gideon's son through his concubine, uh, he hatches this plot to manipulate his mother's family in order to form a conspiracy with the leaders of a city, the Shechem, uh, who are going to supply him with the means of brutally and violently taking out all of his brothers. Uh, this story is a train wreck before it even leaves the station. It's just um, 
horrible to watch. And, and so you have to wonder why. Like, what is all of that for? Uh, there's one clear motive for Abimelech. He wants to be king. He wants to be king, and he's willing to kill all of his brothers to secure that throne. So how does someone get to that point? I mean, that's dark, right? That doesn't just come out of nowhere. How, how, how do you get to that point? Well, on the one hand, if we're following through the book of Judges, uh, one clear answer is, is Israel's idolatry. That has been the problem that has brought on all of their issues through this book. Uh, worshiping something other than the true God, giving their allegiance and glory to a false God. Chapter 8 concluded, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. But on the other hand, uh, the problem with Abimelech and Shechem is not really Baal at all. Uh, it's not so much the glory of Baal that drives Abimelech to seize the throne, though the problem is certainly idolatry. But what drives Abimelech's violent campaign more than the cult of Baal is the cult of Abimelech. It's the cult of self. It's his own, the, the pursuit of his own glory and power, even if it means taking down everyone else in the process, anyone who stands in the way. And that seems extreme, and of course it is extreme, right? This, this story is the, uh, the logical end where we're left unchecked where we, could, we can go. It's horrible. And yet, that same treasonous bent exists in all of our hearts as well, that, that bent towards selfish desire, selfish ambition. If we're honest, we want people to recognize our greatness and act accordingly. That's, that's how our sinful hearts work. We want what we want, and we want others to make it happen. Uh, I love how Paul Tripp captures this impulse in all of us. He says, I want chocolate at ready reach at all times. I want to drive on roads paid for by other citizens who choose not to use them. I want a wife who says, of course, Brandon, I agree with you. I live for the glory that is you. I want children who say, I will forthwith go and obey, O wise father, that I have been given. I want neighbors who move into the neighborhood just because I'm there. I want, I want, I want. We want the world to get with the program and begin revolving around us. We want to be king. And, and that desire can lead us to some ugly attitudes and behaviors. I mean, whether it's the, the subtle ways that we might manipulate praise or recognition. Uh, so today, my, my goal is to attempt to make ribs for Carissa for Mother's Day. And yet, on a day that is for her and a meal that is for her, I guarantee you, at some point, I will work into that conversation. So, babe, what do you think about the ribs? Like just trying, looking for praise on a day that's supposed to be about her, right? That's just how my sinful heart works. And, and so we can, that drive for ambition, it, it, it pushes us to do the stupidest of things. Uh, the ambition to make much of our career at the expense of marriage or family or, or personal integrity. The ambition that drives us to spend money, 
that we don't have on things we don't need because of how it makes us feel, like a king or a queen for a day. Uh, The ambition that drives people to pornography or to alcohol abuse or physical abuse. Anything that, that gives us a semblance just for a moment of being in control, of having power, of feeling like a king. It's the same thing that fuels atrocities like what we uh, that what recently happened in Georgia, where, where two white men felt they had the authority to track down and, and stop and interrogate at gunpoint a black man running through their neighborhood and then to gun him down when he refused to comply and a justice system that was content to sweep that under the rug until it was leaked to the public. Like, where does that come from? That kind of indifference and violence that would uh, dehumanize people and use them for selfish gain. Well, it comes from this innate longing to think that I deserve to be in control, calling the shots, doing the right in my own eyes. I deserve to be king. And none of us, none of us are immune from that. But when you look even closer at Abimelech's idolatrous ambition, I think the grossest part of it uh, is that it comes by taking advantage of God's salvation through the hand of Gideon, his father. Like before God raised up Gideon, Israel was in hiding, right? They were oppressed by their enemies. Uh, Abimelech's conspiracy to become king wouldn't even be possible had God not not acted in salvation through the hand of Gideon to bring Israel uh, into a time of peace. But, But rather than responding to that salvation with gratitude and repentance and devoted service to God, Abimelech uses God's salvation as his chance to make a move for the throne. He exploits the goodness of God. You know, this reminds me of Uncle Andrew's character in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew. It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, so Uncle Andrew is this kind of slimy character, and he's, he's transported to Narnia before it's even Narnia, uh, where he and others witness the creation of this new world. As Aslan the lion sings it into being. And, and so there's this point in the story where a small bar that was ripped from a lamppost in London gets thrown and, and planted into the soil at Narnia and actually grows into a new lamppost. So Uncle Andrew realizes the creative power at work in this new world and he shouts, I have discovered a world where everything is bursting with life and growth. The commercial possibilities of this country are unbounded. Bring a few old bits of scrap iron here, bury them, and they'll come up as brand new railway engines, battleships, anything you please. They'll cost nothing, and I can sell them in England. I shall be a millionaire. The first thing is to get that brute shot. And of course, the brute he's referring to is the lion whose own creative power and goodness brought this whole world, lamppost and all, into being. We exploit God's goodness for our own selfish gain. And that is so easy to do. And we use the promise of God's forgiveness as an excuse to go on sinning, right? I I know I shouldn't do this, but God's going to forgive me, so I'm going to do it anyway. Like that is exploiting the grace of God. 
uh, the scriptures have not good things to say about that, right? Uh, or, or else we use his gift of salvation as an excuse to claim from him whatever we think will make our lives happy and meaningful on our own terms. Rather than responding to God's goodness and deliverance with gratitude and joyful humility and uh, fully devoted service, we, we have this temptation to treat God's grace as a mere door to our own self-glorification, the chance to make our move in making much of self. And so Abimelech makes his move. He, he exploits God's goodness in, in uh, the salvation that was supplied by Gideon's hand, and then he takes advantage of his family's connection to the leaders of Shechem. He, he plays the angle that wouldn't one ruler be a lot better for you than 70 rulers? And especially if that ruler is related to you, right? And, and the leaders of Shechem, they take that bait. Not because they're particularly enthralled with Abimelech, but because, in accordance with their own ambition, they see this as a chance to get to benefit from having a hometown boy on the throne. Verse 3, their hearts inclined to them to him, for they said, He is our brother. Like this could go well for us. And so the revolution begins. Uh, the leaders fund Abimelech, who hires a, a bunch of worthless thugs. And, and kills all 70 of his brothers. In his ambition to be king, his brothers cease to be people and instead become obstacles to his own glory, his own power, obstacles that must be removed by any means necessary. And, and so he slaughters them the, one, the way that, that one would slaughter animals elsewhere in the Bible on a single stone, one by one. It is cold, systematic, cruel, uh, even pagan in its, in its actions. It's gut-wrenching. And, and when it's finished, when he's finished with this sacrifice of his own brothers, uh, the leaders of Shechem and Beit Milo throw a little party and crown him as king. They crown him as king. Mission accomplished, right? The result, however, is that both parties, through their selfish ambition, have committed high treason against the true king, the real king, God in heaven. And as we're going to see, that kind of treason will be met with his just condemnation. And as that begins to unfold, you, you come to verses 7 through 21, and you see the foolishness of wanting to be king. First, we see the idolatry of it. Now we see the foolishness of it. Amid Abimelech's murderous campaign, verse 5 tells us that one of his brothers did manage to escape, uh, Jotham, the youngest. And upon hearing the report that Abimelech uh, has been coronated, he, he, or he's been crowned king, his coronation, Jotham ascends to the top of Mount Gerizim, and he begins to pronounce a curse on his people from the very mountain where God's blessing had formerly gone forth, uh, back in the book of Deuteronomy. And this curse takes the form of a fable in verses 8 to 15, followed by an interpretation in verses 16 to 20. It's really 
uh, kind of a comical thing. See, these trees go looking, these mighty trees, uh, the cedars of Lebanon, decide they need another plant to reign over them as king. And they go looking and talking to all sorts of different plants, and, and everybody knows their place, and so they, they refuse to, to uh, become that king. And so finally, they're willing to settle for the least qualified plant of all, the thorny bramble. I mean, the picture is ridiculous. The mighty cedars of Lebanon, the, the most celebrated trees in Scripture, the choicest lumber, that they would be so stupid as to look for refuge in the shade of a tiny, uh, scratchy thorn bush. It's meant to be ridiculous. And it's meant to be a picture of the logic of Shechem in their conspiracy with Abimelech. Like, their logic is on par with a stupid tree. This is, this is not a good idea. It should look foolish to everyone. Uh, and the point of the story comes in verse 16. It's to expose the selfish motives underneath Shechem's alliance with Abimelech. And not just the selfish motives, but the deadly consequences that it's going to bring forth. So Jotham basically says, like, if you in good faith have made this alliance with Abimelech, and uh, at the same time are able to pay due honor to Gideon's family for all of the good they accomplished for you. The fact that you're not hiding in a cave somewhere uh, from, the hand, from the Midianites, that's, that's what God accomplished through Gideon. So if you can honor Gideon and take refuge in Abimelech in good faith, you could do both of those at the same time. Of course, the answer is obviously no, as Jotham recounts their complicity in the, in the conspiracy. Uh, if you can do that, enjoy your new king. But if not, if not, then just as fire was to come out of the bramble to consume the cedars of Lebanon in the parable, so let fire come out of Abimelech to consume Shechem and let fire come out of Shechem to assume Abimelech. They will both go down by means of a mutually assured destruction. And the great irony in this whole plot that they've hatched. The great irony is that both parties are so blinded by their selfish ambition that they're unable to see the obvious threat that the other one poses. Like if, if Abimelech, if Abimelech is so hungry for the throne that he's willing to kill 70 of his own brothers, his own flesh and blood, what makes Shechem think that he won't turn on them the moment that they become a threat to him. Uh, it's interesting, even within the story, Gideon's brothers and the people of Shechem are both described with the same word. They're called brothers. So if he's willing to do that to them, why wouldn't, what would stop him from doing it to Shechem? And, and what kind of support does Abimelech really think he's going to receive from a people who were so disloyal to their former leader, the one who actually accomplished something for them, who actually uh, was used by God to deliver them from the hand of Midian? Uh, if, if, they're so easily, if they can so easily dispense with Gideon and get rid of his family, what makes Abimelech think that they're going to remain loyal to him? I mean, it, it's like the foolishness of marrying someone who, who abandoned their former spouse just for you. Well, if they could so easily break that word, what makes you think they're going to keep their word to you? It, it, it's folly. And if Shechem is so interested 
in having a hometown boy on the throne because of what they think they'll get out of the deal, what happens when someone comes along who's a little closer in relation or who offers a little sweeter deal? This is the foolishness of selfish ambition. And, and how often are we tempted to do the same thing, right? To ignore common sense or to ignore the words of Scripture the advice of mentors or leaders, uh, the examples of the past, the warnings of friends, and just plunge ourselves into something we think is going to bring satisfaction or, or, or make us feel like we're, we're finally worth something, and yet all the while ignoring the obvious dangers that it poses, not just to us, but to all of those around us. The unwitting victims of our self-centered pursuits. You know, the children who, who have a hard time trusting anybody anymore for fear of being, take advantage of, uh, being taken advantage of or being abandoned again. Or, or the friend whose reputation was destroyed through my gossip as I kind of pulled them down in order to get ahead. The casualties of our kingdoms, the berated colleagues, the abandoned spouses, the exploited clients, as, as Proverbs 14, 12 warns us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We want the power, and we will do the stupidest things to try and get it. So finally, uh, verses 22 to 57, the rest of the chapter, they show us the result of wanting to be king where this road eventually leads us. The result of treason, uh, which is God's just condemnation, his judgment, as played out in Abimelech and Shechem and their mutual destruction of each other. And so if you look again at verses 22 to 24, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Treason will be met by God's just condemnation. So God sends an evil spirit, or, or perhaps better understood, a, a spirit of disaster, a spirit of calamity, an agent of God's just judgment who triggers Shechem to betray Abimelech. So first they set an ambush against Abimelech in verse 25, and then they decide to form a new conspiracy with a fellow named Gaul, who, you guessed it, claims to have a closer family relationship to them and offers them a sweeter deal. Um, verses 26 to 29, it's like the proverbial barroom scene where, where Gaul is kind of just running his mouth. Like, if you think you, got, you, get a, you get something out of having Abimelech on the throne, well, I can give you something even better, and I can beat him up. It, it's, it's that petty. And of course, when Abimelech hears about this, well, you might say that, the match is lit, and the consuming fire begins to go forth. Uh, first, he ambushes Gaul, and he sends him packing in verses 30 to 41. 
And then Abimelech begins to take his vengeance out on Shechem. Uh, he starts by ambushing the workers in the field, like the people who were just going to work that morning, attacking them. Uh, Gideon-style, he divides his, his troops up into three companies and, and surrounds them. And then he goes and he kills, he turns on the city, he kills the people of it, he levels the city, and then he follows those who had tried to escape to the Tower of Shechem for refuge. He and his thugs, again, he, he kind of pulls this play from Gideon's playbook. He goes and he cuts some lumber and he tells everybody, what you've seen me do, you do the same thing. And, and he and his thugs pile all of this lumber against the Tower of Shechem and the fire literally goes forth from Abimelech and consumes the people of Shechem, a thousand men and women. But since Abimelech's on a roll, uh, he continues to move on. He, he goes to the nearby town of Thebitz and he tries to do the same thing to them that he just did to Shechem. The people have taken refuge in a tower. And so Gideon knows what to do with towers, another tower, another fire. But at just the right time, as he is attempting to set fire to the door, look at verse 53. A certain woman threw an upper millstone. So it's a, a pretty heavy stone that's used to grind against the bottom stone in a mill for, for grain. Threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Don't miss the irony there. The one who killed 70 of his own brothers on a single stone is likewise killed by a single stone. But not to go down uh, as an object of scorn in the annals of Israel's history, like Sisera in chapter 4, who was killed by a woman, which is a, a particular slam for brutalizing thugs in that day, uh, Abimelech decides to have his armor bearer strike him and, and run him through and kill him instead, finish him off. But the funny thing is, we all know the truth still to this day, and even later in the Old Testament, when this story is told in 2 Samuel 11, the woman still gets the credit for taking out Abimelech. Happy Mother's Day. And the story concludes then in verses 56 to 57. Thus God returned evil, the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. <clears throat> no matter how much Shechem thought they stood to gain, no matter how powerful Abimelech thought he was, no matter how much authority either of them thought they had, their selfish ambition blinded them to the fact that there is only one king and it is God above, it is not them. And that such treasonous ambition will be met with his just judgment. And there's a warning here for us as well. There is a penalty for treason in God's kingdom for seeking to displace the true king and, and put ourselves or someone else on his throne. There's a penalty for selfish ambition, as that, the kind of, of ambition that, that results in, uh, that rebels against God's rightful rule or that 
tries to replace his vision of life for our own or that withholds from him the glory he deserves or deprives from others the good he desires for them. And in God's commitment to justice, he will bring every offense to account. Every offense. And so what do we do with that? What do we do in the face of our own selfish ambition and and the result of God's just judgment? Well, Abimelech may have been the first Israelite to be crowned king, though he was a sham, but thankfully he was not the last. When the true king of Israel, the last king, the one that all of Scripture is pointing forward to or looking back on, when that true king arrived some 2,000 years ago, he did not do what was right in his own sight, make up his own rules. Rather, he faithfully carried out the will of his father. He kept the covenant for all of us as a good shepherd, as the true king, the shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. When you look at at the story of Jesus, when you look at the person of Jesus revealed to us in the Gospels, uh, in the Scriptures, we see none of the so-called politics of Abimelech, like the ruthless violence, the hunger for power, the backstabbing vengeance, the irrational assault, the worship of other gods. We see none of that. Rather, we see a king who feeds the hungry, who opens blind eyes, who heals the sick, who frees the captives, who liberates the oppressed. As we saw when we studied the book of Philippians last year, we have a king in Jesus, though though he is very God of God. He did not treat his equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited for selfish gain, but rather he emptied himself. He emptied himself He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when the moment of truth came in Jesus' earthly life, when, when the kingdom was on the line, he didn't take out the competition, you know, sacrificing each of them on a single stone, rather through a single offering of himself, he gave his life as a ransom for many. He looked at rebels and traitors and insurrectionists like you and me, and he looked upon us with love and laid his life down. That's the kind of king we have in Jesus. He loved the rebel to the point of taking our place taking us, uh, rescuing us from just judgment in hell. Jesus is the good king who lays his life down for the sheep. He's the good king who lays his life down for the sheep. And not only does he rescue us from the penalty of our treason, he shows us a better way. He shows us a better way. We don't have to be enslaved to those desires and ambitions that, that left unchecked leaves such a mess in our lives and in, in the lives of others. We don't have to take matters into our own hands to get what we think we need out of life. 
or take others down with us. In Jesus, we have the power of the Holy Spirit and we have the pattern of his self-giving love. We have the cross. Love that, that motivates us not to live for ourselves, but to live for our King. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died and therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The more deeply we know Jesus, the more our selfish ambitions are replaced with godly ambitions. Ambition is not the problem. It's whose kingdom we're serving. And the more deeply we know Jesus, the more those selfish ambitions become eclipsed by desires to see God's kingdom thrive and flourish, the, the desire to serve him and make much of him. And yet the longer we know Jesus, the more we realize how far we still have to go. That, that holiness really is hard and that I'm not, I'm not near as godly as I once thought I was. But that's okay because Jesus is patient. He is patient, he is grace, gracious, and his grace is enough for us as we seek to put one foot in front of the other following him day by day. And because he is enough, because his grace is enough, we are actually free to say no to self and yes to Christ, who is eternally worthy of, of our following him. To, to, to say no day by day, sometimes moment by moment, saying no to self and yes to Jesus, even if it costs me all of my dreams all of my ambitions, all of my glory and my gain, Jesus is worth it. As Paul says again in Philippians in chapter three, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Making yourself king destroys lives and leads to judgment. Surrendering yourself to Christ our King is the point of life, and it frees us to love. And so may we follow the model of Christ our King and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves, our spouses, our family members, our children, our friends, our colleagues. May today and every day, may we say no to self and yes to Jesus because he is worth it. Let's pray and ask for the grace to do that. Gracious Father, we do confess that, that there remains in our hearts a treasonous agenda that thinks we would do so much better job running the world than you. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking such low thoughts of you and thinking such high thoughts of ourselves. 
Forgive us for the times where we're tempted to exploit your grace as an opportunity to make much of ourselves. Lord, we need your mercy. And we praise you that you have lavished that very mercy on us through Jesus, your son. Lord, may we rest in him. May we rejoice in him. May we trust him as we fight against our sinful tendencies, as we seek to honor you, as we seek to love others the way we've been loved by you. Lord, would your grace have its way with us? Would it bring about your desired effect in making us new day by day, helping us look more and more like your son. And Lord, we celebrate the, the, the countless ways that you have visited us with grace in our lives. Lord, we celebrate Mother's Day today. We think of the uh, wonderful examples that so many of us have been blessed to have in moms and grandmas, the ways that you have shaped us through that. We celebrate that even as we grieve those uh, together with those who have lost uh, mothers or, uh, or who have longed to be a mom and have just never been given that opportunity. Lord, may we all look to your grace um, for hope. And Lord, we, we look to your grace now for those who are in need of your healing touch. I think of Carol Swore and Vicki Dubeck and Margaret Godfrey, Lord. Uh, would you be with each of them? in their recent um, uh, falls. Uh, Lord, would you be with Mike Merritt and with Chris Page, with Mark Crottinger and John Wright, with Amy Davis and Izzy Vigil and John Scow and Blake Bottomley. Lord, so many among us, others uh, that have not yet named, that, that need your healing touch, God. Be with those who have lost loved ones recently. Lord, we think of Haley Knight and Brenda Owens of Jerry Ask and Dave Balvin. And we think of our missionaries and our outreach partners, Lord, uh, specifically Steve and Meg, who are serving overseas. Uh, Lord, would you give them grace as they, like many of us, are navigating the implications of lockdowns and seeking to bear witness to the hope of your gospel in a hard situation. Lord, thank you for the ways that you've met us as a congregation recently in your gracious provision through the giving of your people and, and through the unity and clarity you, you brought through the recent vote on the payroll protection funding. Uh, Lord, we celebrate the ways that you lead us and guide us, and we confess our ongoing need for you. Lord, would you meet each of us with your provision with your protection, and would you hasten the days when we are able to gather again in person to celebrate you as one body with one voice for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.